my in-laws have this tradition that I have really enjoyed being a part of. Whenever we are celebrating somebody's birthday, like we did this week with Brant and Theo, we have to tell the birth story. Now, we didn't quite do that in the same detailed way when I was growing up in my family. I mean, yes, we might always giggle every year about the fact that I was 12 pounds when I was born. (laughs) Yeah, you heard that right, 12 pounds. (laughs) Bless my poor mom. But we didn't always hear all the details of the drama that led up to the birth. And of course, if you've ever heard Chris Coombs tell a story, then you know there might be just a little bit of drama in the telling. Some points will be emphasized and some will be brushed over because any good storyteller like Chris knows that how you tell the story is just as important as the story itself. The gospel writers certainly understood this, and it's part of the gift of having four different gospels instead of just one, because each writer takes a little different approach to telling the story of Jesus, including the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus into our world. And so this year, we are going to look at each of those four stories one at a time. We're going to spend the next four Sundays of Advent exploring how each one begins and asking ourselves what this gospel writer might have to say to us this Advent. Because here's the really beautiful thing. While each of them tells about the coming of Jesus, they all do it in very different ways, and each has something we need to hear. Of course, just a moment ago, we heard part of Matthew's version of the story, and Matthew's version you might think of as the dad's version of the story, because Matthew is the gospel writer that really focuses in on Jesus or on Joseph and Joseph's story and experience, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, I, I want to remind you of what actually comes in the first 17 verses of Matthew, even before Joseph. And that is everyone's favorite passage, most memorized part of the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and on and on it goes for 17 verses until we finally get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, I did think seriously about spending the four Sundays of Advent preaching just out of the genealogy, only I had to remind myself that you all might not find it as riveting as I do, and you might be tempted to just turn that switch off before I had a chance to finish. So I decided, you know, I'll wait until next year when you're in the room here with me and you can't get away so easily. For now, I just want to point out that there are a few interruptions to that nice flow of the genealogy of Jesus. I I mean, for the most part, it has this really nice rhythm all the way through. Father and son, father and son, generation and generation, father and son, name and name. But four times, that nice little pattern gets interrupted. And the first is where I stopped just a moment ago, Judah, 
the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar. It's the first time a woman's name interrupts the flow of all these men. And for most of us, the name Tamar probably doesn't mean that much. But if you're the kind of person that loves to dig into some of the more obscure stories, then you might know that the story of Tamar is kind of a scandalous one. In short, Tamar is this outcast daughter-in-law of Judah who disguises herself as a prostitute, who Judah then hires for her services, not realizing who she is, which is how she got pregnant with Perez and Zerah. It's a nice little Christmas story, right? (laughs) Okay, so not exactly a Hallmark special, but this is how Matthew starts to tell the Christmas story. And not only does he remind us about Tamar, but also Rahab, the prostitute, who became part of Jesus' line. She interrupts the genealogy. And also Ruth, the Moabite, who seduces Boaz. And then don't forget about Solomon's mom, Bathsheba. Only Matthew doesn't quite use her name. He, He just sort of drives home the point of this interruption by calling her, you know, the wife of Uriah. Hint, hint, that David took. Remember that story, right? King David has Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his own soldiers who's out at war. He has his wife abducted and brought to him so he can sleep with her. And once the word gets out that she's pregnant, he ends up having her husband killed in battle so he could try to cover up the whole sordid affair. It's messy, isn't it? And Matthew adds it right off the very bat of his gospel as he tells us the story of Jesus' advent. And here's the thing. Matthew throws in these four women, not because they are the only women whose story we have that are also a part of Jesus' genealogy. He could have included all kinds of other women whose stories we also have in the Old Testament, like Sarah and Rebecca and others, but he doesn't which has me thinking, why? Maybe Matthew is telling Jesus' birth story in a particular way, emphasizing certain points, brushing over others for a certain kind of effect to make a point. And what strikes me is that the story of each of these women carries a kind of scandal that interrupts the nice little flow, the nice, neat story that We like to imagine our lives being a part of the the nice and neat little stories that we like to tell ourselves about God even and how God works in our life. I mean, we all have these stories, don't we? We have this picture in our mind of what our life is and how our own life might play out. I'm going to have this kind of job and live in this sort of neighborhood. I'm going to have this kind of family, a spouse, a wife, a few kids maybe. I'm going to use my free time to do these sorts of things, or I'm going to make this certain kind of difference in the world. We may not think of it exactly in a storyline, but for all of us, there's sort of this picture that we have in the background of our minds and in the background of our hearts of the kind of life that we are living and and how it will play out if we take the right steps. And there's a good chance that that starts out for us just like the genealogy did with a kind of predictable flow to it. But then 
out of nowhere, some great interruption to that flow happens in our life. I know it has for many of us. The story of your life, it was playing out in, in a certain way, wasn't it? Until, until it wasn't anymore. Something unexpected happened, something that wasn't part of the plan or part of the picture. And, and that something might be all kinds of things. Maybe something unexpected happened to a family member of yours, a child, a spouse, a parent, and, and it changed your story. Maybe there was some betrayal that came your way. Something in your career just wasn't what it was supposed to be, how you expected it to be. Maybe there was some profound loss that you experienced. Or, or maybe, maybe a pandemic just creeped into your world and everything you planned for your life to be this year got tossed out, and you keep hoping it will get better, but instead it seems to keep getting worse, and you're living in this kind of blurry haze because for months now nothing has really been certain, nothing except the fact that you're really missing your friends and your family. Interruptions happen in all kinds of ways, the thing they all have in common for us is just how disorienting they can be and how much they start to recolor the picture that we had in our mind about the kind of life that we were going to be living. And the way that Matthew tells the story, interruptions are the way that Jesus gets born into our story. And in just in case we don't quite get that through the genealogy, Matthew brings it home for us by giving us a peek into Joseph's story. Now, as far as we know, Joseph is just this regular God-fearing guy working with his hands in this small rural village. He's a craftsman, and there's a good chance he learned that trade from his father who had learned it from his father before him. That's how things worked back then, you know. You grew up learning your dad's trade so that you could make a living for yourself and a way to support your family the way that your dad had done for you growing up. I mean, remember, in that world, there, there was no upward mobility system that gave you a dream of something different than what you grew up with. There wasn't an education system that might send you off into some career other than what your parents did. Trades were just passed down from generation to generation, and so were family lifestyles. So Joseph most likely grew up in this little village, learning from his dad, watching his mom, developing this certain kind of picture about how his life would work and, and how his life would be. Just like his dad, he'd find a wife someday. They'd have a few kids, build their own family together, He'd work hard during the day and come home to them in the afternoon. And as his kids got older, he would teach them the trade and pass it on to them. And this was the good life. It, it was how Joseph probably imagined his life would be. Not fancy, but full of those simple delights of marriage and family, hard work and something to show for it rest and play. It had this nice kind of rhythm to it, a sort of a, a predictability to his life. 
And this really could have been his story, you know. He was this righteous man, as far as we know, so he was probably trying to do things right. He even found a nice little girl from a good family in the same village, and they started flirting, and arrangements were made, and they got engaged. And this picture of what his life was going to be started to come into focus. Mary would be his wife. They would get a house. They would have a few kids. He would keep working like his dad did. You can all picture it, right? I mean, Joseph, he certainly did. But then comes what probably felt like the worst kind of interruption for him at that point. It was the kind of thing he could not have even imagined happening to him. Rumors start going around that Mary is pregnant, and it's like someone just spilled this dark cloud of ink over the picture he has in his mind of his life. And you can imagine, right, how painful that would have been. Everything he'd planned has suddenly just tossed out. And there's this lump in his throat, this pressure in his chest. It was suffocating, and maybe he kept hoping it would get better, but instead it was getting worse. And he is living in a kind of blurry haze, Joseph's life won't be, cannot be what he thought it would be. Even after he has a dream, that vision, and he gets a holy prompting to take Mary as his wife anyway, and, and, and he's told, you know, it's going to be okay, that, that doesn't make everything easy for him. Because the truth is, even as he wakes up the next day and the day after that and the month after that and the year after that, he still all just has to trust this fuzzy midnight dream and trust Mary's word over the very real concrete facts that Mary has a baby growing inside of her and he is not the father. There's no dream or anything that Mary could say that can change the cold, hard fact that Joseph is not the father of the baby growing in her womb. There's no dream or anything Mary could say that could change the cold, hard fact that this is not the life that Joseph thought he was going to have. Joseph's story has been interrupted. It will never be the same. And this is how Jesus is born. Or as Matthew puts it in verse 18, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. Which may just be telling us that this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah happens in our world. It happens in the midst of all kinds of disruptions and disorientations. In the midst of our stories getting turned upside down and our lives getting turned around in, in the midst of broken hearts and fuzzy futures, it's into these stories and moments that Jesus is born. I think it also tells us that when Jesus is born into our world and into our lives, that we should expect some interruptions and disruptions. Jesus does not come as just this simple gift wrapped under the Christmas tree. He's not something we can open up and enjoy for a while and then toss aside when we lose interest. When Jesus is born into our life, the rest of our story may just get rewritten. 
I mean, Joseph's certainly did. Even after the pregnancy and the dreams and the marriage and the trip to Bethlehem, more interruptions kept coming because of Jesus. Next, Matthew tells us about wise men that show up and threats from Herod. And Joseph has to take his wife and this child further away from his home back in Nazareth, all the way down to Egypt, further away from what he thought his life was going to be. And even once they get back to Nazareth years later, Joseph doesn't ever get his old story back. In fact, it's kind of interesting to me that Joseph actually starts to fade into the background of the story of Mary and Jesus, doesn't he? Before long, Joseph actually just disappears from the gospel stories altogether. We don't even know what happened to him. The only thing that we can actually say for sure is that once Jesus's life interrupts Joseph's life, Joseph's story is no longer about himself. It's actually constantly getting rewritten to be all about Jesus and the work that Jesus is doing in this world and the work that Jesus is doing in all of us. So maybe Joseph's story never actually becomes what he thought it would be, and maybe your story will never become what you thought it should be. But according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus has a way of being born into some interrupting times. And once Jesus is a part of your life, the one thing that you can count on is that your life, your story, is not going to be about you anymore. It's now about the life of God that has interrupted your story. It's about the life of God that is interrupting the story of our world. And it's about your chance to play some small, beautiful role in that life-changing, healing story. Amen.